quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A Putin ally's daughter killed near Moscow in a car bomb attack. The lead starts right now. Car bomb mystery hitting close for the Kremlin. The daughter of a spiritual guide to Putin was killed right in front of him. Russia's blaming Ukraine, but might it be more complicated than that? Plus, violent arrest in Arkansas. A bystander video captures a man being beaten by three law enforcement officers who have since been taken off the beat after the video went viral. What are top cops saying today about this disturbing scene? And decision time. Will President Biden fulfill a campaign promise and cancel student loan debt for millions of Americans? And if he does that, might that make inflation worse? An announcement could be days away. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with our world lead and the mystery of who murdered Russian propagandist Daria Dugina, the daughter of influential ultra-nationalist Russian writer Alexander Dugin, an imperialist who thinks Russia should occupy all of Europe, not just Ukraine, extending from Ireland to Serbia. Dugin watched from a different car as his 29-year-old daughter was exploded along with her Toyota, which burst into flames 20 miles west of Moscow on Saturday. The Russian security agency FSB claims a Ukrainian did it. Ukraine insists that's false. Russia says a woman who was a member of Ukraine's far-right Azov regiment plotted the attack. They allege that this assassin brought her 12-year-old daughter with her into Russia, and the two then escaped to Estonia after detonating the car bomb remotely. Again, Ukraine denies all of this, but now Russian media personalities say it's time for further retaliation and even more bombardment of missiles on innocents in Kyiv, Ukraine, just two days before Ukraine's Independence Day, as Ukrainian cities cancel planned events and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warns of particularly ugly attacks. CNN's senior international correspondent Fred Plykin is in Moscow for us with more on the explosion that could trigger a major escalation in this war, including new video of the suspect released by Russia, a video that raises more questions than answered about this supposed evidence. Shortly after the explosion that caused Daria Dugina to crash on a Moscow highway, her car engulfed in flames. Daria Dugina was dead at the scene, police say. Her father, pro-Kremlin ideologue Alexander Dugan, looking on in dismay. Tonight, Vladimir Putin with an angry response. Quote, a vile, cruel crime cut short the life of Daria Dugina. She proved by deed what it means to be a patriot of Russia, the Russian leader said in a condolence letter. After only a short investigation, the Russians now blaming Ukraine for the murder. The intelligence service releasing this video, which CNN cannot independently verify, claiming to show a Ukrainian special services operative who allegedly entered Russia together with her young daughter, shadowed Dugina, carried out the car bombing, and then fled to neighboring Estonia. My views. Alexander Dugin, who some believe may have been the actual target of the plot, lashing out against Ukraine. 
Our hearts yearn for more than just revenge or retribution. It's too small, not the Russian way. We only need our victory. My daughter laid her maiden life on her altar. So win, please, Dugan wrote in a statement. Dugan has long advocated Russian expansionism and, some believe, laid the ideological groundwork for Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The Ukrainians deny they had anything to do with his daughter's killing. Russian propaganda lives in a fictional world, an advisor to Ukraine's presidential administration said and hinted the Ukrainians believe it may have been an inside job, adding, quote, Vipers in Russian special services started an intraspecies fight. The incident comes as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears the half-year mark and Moscow is keen to keep public opinion in favor of the operation. With a massive show of patriotism on Russia's National Flag Day in a series of events around the country. In these trying times, as Russia's military is fighting in Ukraine and the country is under heavy sanctions, it's become increasingly important to display patriotism. At this event, the organizers have brought together hundreds of people to create a giant Russian flag. Flags in public spaces and on Moscow streets. At this massive nighttime convoy, many of the drivers flash the Z symbol of Russia's invasion forces fighting in Ukraine. Our commander-in-chief and the army are doing everything right, this man says, as the pro-Putin convoy circles Moscow in a display of power, trying to show that Russia won't be deterred from its current course. And Jake, it really is a charged-up atmosphere here in Moscow right now, especially if you look at sort of the upper and top echelons of Russian Kremlin-controlled media, but also politics as well. There have been some senior uh, sort of leaders, especially from the media sphere, who have called for strikes on Kiev and even strikes on decision-makers, of uh, on decision-making centers uh, of the Ukrainians against all of this as the Ukrainians continue to say that they had nothing to do with this murder, Jake. All right, CNN's Fred Plykin in Moscow. Thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's David McKenzie, who's in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. David, Ukraine's big Independence Day is in two days. How is this attack and the subsequent Russian calls to, to bomb Kiev, how is it affecting uh, what was planned? Well, Jake, already the uh, high authorities here were very much on alert for possible ratcheting up of direct attacks, possibly on the capital here, uh, Kiev, uh, and also on those decision-making centers as Fred described the president, Zelensky, saying that they were expecting particularly ugly incidents or attacks in the coming days. And this was all before this bomb blast in Moscow. So I think it's fair to say that there is a level of tension here. How has it affected the celebrations planned? Well, they have banned all mass gatherings, all celebrations, not just here in Kiev, but in several major cities across the country. In the northeast Kharkiv, they're actually installing a 36-hour curfew because of fears of Russian attacks. Jake? David, uh, Russia is claiming that the woman who allegedly carried out the attack was part of the Azov or Azov Regiment. Remind our viewers about the significance of that regiment. Well, the Azov Regiment has a very controversial past. It was uh, started several years ago, and it drew 
the support and volunteers who would be considered white nationalists, even white supremacists. It was a right-wing nationalist group. It has mutated, I think, here in Ukraine, at least that's the, uh, the view of the Azov Battalion. It was folded into uh, the National Guard here in Ukraine, became more mainstream in terms of the way people here look at it. And just speaking on to the streets to people here in Kyiv, they view those who, who fight for the Azov Battalion, now that regiment, uh, as heroes because of their defense of Mariupol, uh, their last ditch defense of that city in the east. Now, because of that history, uh, President Putin has used this in the uh, Nazi propaganda, uh, accusing Ukraine of Nazis uh, within his own uh, country uh, to accuse them of that in Russia. Uh, and the National Guard just a short time ago uh, disavowed any linkages uh, with this bomb blast, saying that this uh, person that they are accusing in Moscow of, uh, of carrying out this attack had nothing to do with the Azov Battalion or Ukraine in general. Jake? All right, CNN's David McKenzie and Keith, thanks so much. Let's bring in former Deputy Director of National Intelligence Beth Sanner and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine uh, Bill Taylor. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, let me start with you. It's been 48 hours and Russian security agency, the FSB, says uh, Dugan is murder is already an open and shut case. They've solved it. It's done. Um, what do you think? Suspicious, Jake. Awfully, awfully fast to uh, have wrapped this investigation up. Um, this sounds like some people kind of may have known it in advance. Um, it, you know, people worry there's some possibility that the FSB had something to do with this. And so I would say, well, what would Putin do going after uh, Dugan or Dugana? Um, uh, and he may be worried about his right flank. They've been very hard on him. The right really wants him to crack down even farther on, on Ukrainians and maybe even call up the reserves. So he's putting them in, his, in their place. He's probably going to use this, or he could use this, as a way to crack down on Russians more broadly. And as you've just indicated, there's a concern that he will use this to escalate in Ukraine. Beth, do you agree? What, what people or entities do you think are most responsible, most likely responsible for this attack? I guess as a you know, former intel officer, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to jump too quickly to conclusions. Um, I always think, you know, sometimes the uh, most mundane reasoning could be, you know, someone has a business dealing that goes bad and in Russia everybody has enemies. But I do think that it's more likely that it's politically motivated. Um, but I wouldn't rule anyone out at this point. I mean, it could be... Including Ukraine. Including Ukraine, although I find that much, much, much less likely. Um, I do think that you could have some uh, Ukrainian or Georgian-backed people in Russia. But I think it's much more likely that it's um, an internal Russian matter um, and that uh, somehow the right wing is involved. But I will say that I think that, you know, no matter who is behind it, Putin's taking advantage of it in just the way Ambassador Taylor said doesn't even matter who did it because the narrative's been set. And, I mean, the idea of the Russians staging a false flag attack, meaning they attack themselves and blame it on Ukraine, this is something we've heard from the U.S. and from Ukraine uh, in terms of Russian tactics literally for decades. For decades. <clears throat> and we remember that President Putin did something like this in 1999. This brought him to power when uh, the FSB, again, killed like 300 Russians um, in an apartment complex uh, in Chechnya. And that set off the Chechen war. So he's done this before. The other person, the other, the other possibility, there's been a small, not well-known group of anti-Putin Russians 
that have claimed responsibility for this. Uh, so it's that's exactly right. It's too, cl- too soon to say, but uh, there's, there's a lot of questions. And, and what do you make of Russia's uh, very quick uh, <laughs> n- nailing down and solving of the case? Yeah. And they say the perpetrator uh, came in with her daughter, a 12-year-old daughter. They set this off. Then she escaped to Estonia. Uh, a Russian official says Estonia has to extradite her or face consequences of harboring a, quote, terrorist um, we have long wondered, people in the United States and around the world, if Russia is going to plan to attack Estonia also. Well, I mean, I, I guess that um, I find it almost farcical how quickly they came up with this. And then the narrative that the 12-year-old helped plant the bomb. I mean, that's not exactly what a professional intelligence service does that is something that is from some wild, completely unbelievable movie that I shut off because I can't take it. It's so crazy. Um, I've never seen the FSB work so quickly in my life. And um, I really think it is incredulous to think that it, it, it really cause, causes major questions about, about this storyline. What can you tell us? I want to get this from both of you. What can you tell us about Putin and Alexander Dugan, who has been called the spiritual uh, guide uh, of the, this intervention in Ukraine? Jake, that's probably too strong. What, he's he's a, a right-wing philosopher who does uh, espouse the notion of Eurasianism, which is Russia leading the world against the West. Um, and it is almost mystical, but it's not clear that he's got very much influence over Putin in any decision-making way. That said, there's been some, you know, Putin's made some statements that sound kind of like what Dugan has said. So there's that uh, kind of philosophical uh, influence is probably there. You agree he's not, it's too, too he's, much to say that he's an advisor to Putin or correct. even a friend? Correct. I don't think he's anywhere close to the inner circle. And I think that we should probably try to blow out of the water this idea of Putin's brain. It's really not accurate as far as everything that I know. I, I don't think that's how we should think about this person. But he's a symbol of this of this nationalism, these ideas that Putin and most of the political elite in Russia have now embraced. And so he is largely, you know, one of the main people responsible for moving this discourse in Russia to this much, much more far right um, ideology uh, beginning in the late 1990s. All right. Thanks to both. You really appreciate it, Adam. Uh, Ambassador Taylor uh, and Beth uh, Sander, thanks so much. Uh, Coming up, that violent arrest in Arkansas. uh, Officers seen on camera on a viral video beating a man who had been pinned to the ground. What an attorney for the suspect believes stopped those officers from killing her client, she says. And the contentious primary race pitting two longtime Democratic lawmakers who are friends and allies against each other. What to watch in their fight that's reshaping New York politics. Plus, Alarming rise. What's behind more women diagnosed with advanced cases of cervical cancer in the United States? CNN is looking into the new numbers ahead. Stay with us. Some truly disturbing video tops today's national lead. This one may be difficult to watch. A bystander captured three law enforcement officers violently arresting a man yesterday in Crawford County, Arkansas, right near the Oklahoma border. First, let's show you the still images. The man on the ground is 27-year-old Randall Worcester. Police say he was wanted for a threat at a nearby gas station. And that somehow led to this in the video. Worcester being repeatedly punched and kicked. The officers only appear to stop when they realized someone was filming them. CNN's Nadia Romero is in Crawford County, Arkansas for us right now, where state police and the FBI have picked up this investigation. 
gotta get out of here. Three Arkansas law enforcement officers have been removed from duty after this disturbing video was posted online, showing them beating a man outside a convenience store. Arkansas State Police have now opened an investigation into use of force by all three officers, and the FBI is also investigating. The Crawford County Sheriff's Office has identified them as Deputy Zach King, Deputy Levi White, and Mulberry Officer Thel Riddle. CNN has reached out to all three, but so far hasn't heard back. They will be uh, punished for what they did if they are found to be in violation of any any rights, laws, or anything like that. This afternoon, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson said the officers' response was not consistent with the training they received. Uh, that is uh, reprehensible conduct uh, in which uh, a suspect uh, is beat in that fashion. Uh, we saw a glimpse of that. It is under investigation. The incident happened Sunday in Mulberry, Arkansas, about 140 miles northwest of Little Rock. On the video, you can see at least two officers punching and hitting the man and kneeing him repeatedly as they try to arrest him. That's when you can hear a woman off camera yelling at the officers, don't beat him, he needs his medicine, to which one of the officers tells her to quote, back the F up and points telling her to get back in her car. We don't know what happened just prior that would cause them to use any level of force. It may justify some level of force being necessary to take him into custody, but it escalated way beyond what it was needed at the time. Police say the man in the video is 27-year-old Randall Worcester of Goose Creek, South Carolina. An attorney representing Worcester tells CNN that Worcester was wanted for allegedly threatening a gas station clerk in a nearby town. The Crawford County Sheriff says when officers located him, he was cooperative at first, then got violent and tried to attack the officers. Police say Worcester refused medical treatment, but was taken to the hospital as a precaution. He's facing numerous charges, including assault, battery, and resisting arrest. The Sheriff's Office and the Mulberry Police Department both released statements saying they hold their officers accountable for their actions. When you look at the video and you see the punches to the head, you see the lifting of the head and pushing it into the, into the pavement, the kneeing of the individual and so forth. That's where it becomes excessive. And there is more video of this incident. Now, the sheriff says that none of the officers are wearing body cameras, but he's seen dash cam video that has not been released to the public. Now, the attorneys representing the suspect, Randall Worcester, says that from what they've seen, they believe the officers used excessive force and their actions were not justified. One attorney told me that she believes the woman who took that cell phone video saved her client's life. And Jake, the sheriff was asked, do you think he would have even found out about this if it weren't for that cell phone video? His response, probably not. Well, at least he was honest about it. Nadia Romero, thank you so much. Let's bring in Dimitri Roberts. He's a law enforcement analyst and also a veteran Chicago police officer. So, uh, Dimitri, today an attorney for the suspect in Arkansas, the one that was underneath that dog pile of police officers, um, spoke about the, the bystander who thought to pull out uh, her cell phone during the incident. Take a listen to what she had to say. We do not know what would happen if that person would not have been videoing. If you, the fight was escalating with those officers, and you hear that woman on that video yelling, and whoever that is, I think she could have saved his life. What do you think? I think this is some bullshit, and we keep having the same conversations over and over again. I've been on this network for seven years now, almost, and we continue to talk about the same things, but yet... Nothing is happening. So she's exactly right. Uh, he probably would have, at a minimum, been arrested, charged with obstructing, charged with resisting arrest. 
The report would have said completely different, something different than what happened. So it's time for us to really, if we're going to talk about this, have real conversations about what happened and why these things continue to happen. Because we we got a clean house, Jake. So at the end of the day, young men and women that look like me are going to continue to be victimized by law enforcement officers who feel that they can. I'm just thinking about you saying this and I'm thinking about remember that initial press release put out by the Minneapolis Police Department about the George Floyd incident. Again, it was some bullshit. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what are we going to do now? We can go back. We can talk about all these things historically. But we're at this moment now and we have an opportunity. This is bigger than black and white. That's not my words. That's the rapper, little baby. But at the end of the day, we got to do something about this. And it's not just about the color of my skin or the officer's uniform. It's at the end of the day, we all bleed the same color. Those officers are human beings. But those that are not doing the right thing, we got to get them out of there, Jake. And so the, the rest of the officers, the tens of thousands of officers that are out there doing the right thing every day, serving our community, serving our country. This brings a bad reputation and name to them. And that's not something we can stand for. Just for the record, I'm not sure what the race is of Mr. Worcester. I'm not sure uh, if he's... Who cares, Jake? At the end of the day, it's another human being. No, no, I hear you. I'm just saying, like, in terms of the racial component. But but listen, one officer had Worcester pinned to the ground. A second officer was was kneeing him. Uh, The third appears to to be punching him uh, repeatedly in the head. Now, we don't know what happened before this. It's possible that he was resisting re- arrest. I have no idea. Maybe he wasn't. I, I, I have it no idea. It does not no, matter. But that's what I want to ask yeah. you as a former police officer in Chicago. Is there any circumstance under which this individual in this moment, uh, it's justified to be behaving, the, for the officers to be behaving like that? Hell no. First of all, those aren't even approved tactics. <laughs> so the, the officer had, the officers had this gentleman on the ground. He's subdued. He doesn't appear to be resisting arrest. They're just being cruel. And people who are cruel and also wear a badge, we better be very careful because that means that young man wasn't the first that that happened to. And he won't be the last unless we start to take action. No, absolutely not. I've, I've been in dozens of chases. I've, I've arrested people that were running, fleeing with weapons. None of them did I ever do that to ever. Under any circumstance. So you heard Nadia Romero report these officers were not wearing body cameras. I don't know what the, the law is in Arkansas or in that county. Maybe they're not required to. Um, but isn't this exactly why people want there to be body cameras? Uh, to make sure that there is complete transparency and people, officers, uh, so, don't uh, excel what they're allowed. Uh, so listen, what first of all, to body cams don't bring transparency. They just bring another level of perspective. But to be, get full transparency... We need to look at full technological solutions like what my company is building. You know, we've built multiple layers of technologies that have been approved by MIT. We've just partnered with Amazon formally, and we're ready to take this to what the is next it? What level. What is your company? The, it's called Seven Star Inc. And uh, we've built two products. One is called Protected, which is right now active in Atlanta and DeKalb County, Georgia. And the second one is Leopard. And what Leopard does is make sure that we know minute by minute, second by second, what's going on on the ground with officers. Those officers can communicate to citizens. Citizens can communicate back to them in any circumstance where there's a uh, a, a coordinated response is required. That's what true transparency looks like. It's in the data. It's not in what we see on video. So the sheriff's office says Arkansas State Police and the FBI will now investigate uh, what was happening during this violent arrest. Um, what do you expect to happen? Nothing, because it hasn't happened this far. So they can only go based on the rules and the boundaries that they have set. Who knows what Arkansas state law is? Who knows what their department's law, law law is? So maybe these officers get fired. 
Cool. But they're not going to jail. We know that much. And at the end of the day, they can go find a job in another department, in another agency. No different than the Uvalde police chief did after he had been released from other agencies. These things are continuing to happen. But until we have a system that can identify those officers and when they put in an application in another law enforcement agency, they're flagged. No different than what happens in TSA or other systems that we have to hold both ourselves and agencies accountable. Dimitri Roberts, always good to have you on. Thank always you, good, sir. Jake. Appreciate Thank it. You. In the money lead, the cost of a common item likely on your grocery list and what it may tell you us about prices on almost everything else. That story next. In our money lead, something we can all sink our teeth into, lower prices at the meat counter. Rahel Solomon joins us now from New York, along with Phil Manley at the White House, where they are hungry at the White House for any good news about the economy. Rahel, let me start with you. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that beef prices are finally falling after more than a year of price increases. Yeah, Jake, something that we don't get to say a lot these days, right, that anything is getting cheaper, but beef prices appear to be, I mean, take a look at the categories, ribeye prices falling 10% for the four-week period ending August 7th, that's compared to a year ago, brisket 18%, ground beef, however, on the upswing 7% higher than a year ago, and what's key here, Jake, is it's demand-driven, right? I mean, folks are cutting back on more expensive cuts of meat, more expensive categories at the grocery store, and they are trading down, which, by the way, we have heard from corporate America. Last week, we heard from Walmart, and Walmart executives said that they were seeing the same thing, that some consumers were trading down in the meat category. They were spending more on things like canned tuna, hot dogs, and chicken, as some consumers clearly try to cut back where they can, with inflation hovering near 40-year highs. And Phil, this news about lower beef prices comes as millions of Americans may get uh, some spending uh, money, some additional spending money, because educational, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona says that President Biden may finally make a decision on student, let, student loan debt forgiveness in the coming days. Yeah, and finally is the key word there. Administration officials have been weighing for several months the debate, and it's a debate with significant political and economic repercussions, and it's one that basically has to end by August 31st. That's when the freeze on borrower repayments for federal student loans put in place in March of 2020 is scheduled to come to an end. The White House has said they will make a decision about either extending that, which is unlikely at this point, I'm told, or canceling some level of student loan debt, as the president pledged to do during the campaign, and Democrats have been pressuring him to do by that deadline. I'm told it's likely at this point, though there's no final decision that has been made, that it could come in the coming days, not just by that deadline. However, there is pressure related to inflation, obviously a critical issue for the American people, and one that even some Democratic economists say could be negatively impacted by a decision to cancel student loan debt uh, or extend the repayment. Larry Summers, the Democratic economist, saying, quote, student loan debt relief is spending that raises demand and increases inflation, made clear he is opposed to extending the moratorium and also uh, any type of cancellation in a large scale uh, beyond just a few thousand dollars, Jake. And Rahel, this unease about inflation is reflected in a new survey of leading economists. Yeah, so this is a survey of nearly 200 economists. It's done twice a year. And in this survey, 72% of economists surveyed said that they expect we will be in a recession by mid-2023, if not sooner. Of course, as the Fed continues to raise rates to try to tame and tackle inflation. And what I thought was really interesting, Jake, is when asked by these uh, economists, these panelists, what one factor do you expect to have the greatest contribution to lowering inflation It was supply chain realignment, which is a huge part of this inflation story, too. But it really illustrates that part of solving inflation 
is not within the control of the Fed. Clearly, though, still not a lot of confidence that the Fed will be able to get it just right so that they can uh, higher interest rates, uh, raise interest rates to lower inflation, but not do it so much that it triggers or tips us into a recession. And uh, Phil, the Biden administration, they're about to make some noise about the administration's accomplishments. Washington Monthly columnist uh, Paul uh, Glasteris uh, has been tweeting today about wages and household wealth going up while the number of people in poverty and those without health insurance, those numbers are going down. Yeah, Jake, it gets at a really complex balancing act on the messaging side of things. The White House has been grappling with over the course of the last several months. How do you acknowledge the fact that inflation is, in fact, high? It does, in fact, affect people. However, you have a broader economy that has particularly compared to the Great Recession of 2008-2009 recovered at a scale in a way that there is just no comparison to. More than nine and a half million jobs created uh, unemployment rate under 3.6 percent. Jake, 22 states right now have an unemployment rate under 3 percent. 14 of those states are at their lowest unemployment rate on record. Wages have been going up. The question is, can they keep pace with the inflation? Bigger question might be, what are the American people paying attention to? The stories and the realities in their grocery stores when it comes to price increases or that broader economic factor that the administration says is much better than perhaps people recognize. All right, Phil Mattingly and Rahel Solomon, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, the hot race this week that's redefining the political battle lines in one of the most populated areas of the United States. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a 15-term member of Congress, that's 30 years in the House of Representatives, may learn tomorrow night whether he or she is out of a job. A newly formed congressional district is pitting veterans and longtime colleagues, Congressman Jerry Nadler and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, against one another in Tuesday's Democratic primary. And incumbent freshman Democrat Mondaire Jones finds himself running for re-election in an entirely new district where hardly anyone previously knew him. CNN's Athena Jones now takes a closer look at some Democratic drama. A rare late summer election in New York. I'm running. I need your vote. Candidates in two high-stakes congressional primaries on the hunt for votes. Say hello to Congressman Nadler. Political heavyweights and longtime allies Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, both in their 15th term in office, now facing off in a redrawn 12th congressional district after a messy redistricting process led to a new court-approved map that combines their districts. Both in their 70s with similar ideologies, they've spent the summer trying to draw contrast with one another. I voted uh, uh, against the, uh, um, the Iraq war. She voted for it. I voted against the Patriot Act, even though 9-11 uh, occurred in my district. She voted for it. You cannot send a man to do a woman's job. Maloney, chair of the powerful House Oversight Committee, leaning into her history as a champion of equal rights for women at a time when the battle over abortion rights has reshaped the midterms landscape. This is the year of Roe where we need experienced, talented, hardworking women in Congress more than ever to protect our rights. As chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Nadler led historic impeachment proceedings against former President Trump. He's been endorsed by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Cherry is always leading the big fights. And by the New York Times editorial board. Maloney and Nadler's main challenger? This race couldn't be closer. It's time for the Obama generation. Serge Patel. A 38-year-old lawyer and former Obama aide who argues it's time for generational change. 
These people have been in office since 1992. The city is significantly different from then. The challenges we face are significantly different than then. And, and the underlying diversity and dynamism of New York has dramatically changed, but its representation has not. In the 10th district, comprising Lower Manhattan and much of Brownstone, Brooklyn, the crowded field includes city and state-level politicians and a sitting first-term congressman who moved to compete for an open seat in the newly drawn district. As a member of Congress, I've thought to bring real change to a broken system. But much of the attention has focused on former impeachment lawyer Dan Goldman, an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune who has spent millions of dollars on his race. He has uncommon experience. Donald Trump will run again in 2024, and he will try to steal the election. As the lead counsel in his first impeachment, I was in the trenches protecting and defending our democracy. The Trump factor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ever present. Donald Trump dominates social and political discourse in this country right now. It had, if it had not been for him, Dan Goldman would be nowhere. Now, the victors in these primaries here in deep blue New York City are heavily favored to win in November's general election. But voter turnout is the big question here. It's late summer. A lot of folks are on vacation. And so absentee voting could be more important than ever. Those candidates who did the best job of reaching their supporters and getting them to cast their ballot before they split town could reap big rewards. Jake? Athena, any, any polling, any indication uh, who, who might have an edge going into the election? It's difficult to say. You know, there's been scant uh, public political public polling here in New York that not polling that meets CNN's uh, standards. And in the the crowded uh, 10th congressional district, it looks as though Dan Goldman and Mondaire Jones are getting the most attention. And we're seeing the most of them with with their TV ads on the air. When it comes to the Nadler Maloney Patel race, uh, Nadler's folks or say they're feeling pretty good. He's gotten some of the big endorsements uh, that that you saw in that piece. And so it's really anybody's guess. But they say they're feeling good uh, about tomorrow. All right. Maybe we'll even have a result tomorrow. Who knows? Athena Jones in New York. Thanks so much. Coming up next, how researchers explain an alarming rise in women with advanced cases of cervical cancer in the United States. Stay with us. In our health lead, an alarming new study finding a sharp increase in advanced stage cervical cancer among women here in the United States. At that stage, the five-year survival rate is only about 20%. Let's get more details from CNN health reporter Jacqueline Howard. Jacqueline, tell us more about what this study shows. Yeah, Jake, it is alarming to see an increase in an advanced stage of cancer, specifically cervical cancer here. And this study also found that at the same time, there's been a decline in diagnosing early stage cervical cancer, which suggests that we're catching some cases that are far more advanced. And that's what's really concerning. So what this study did, researchers looked at data from the year 2001 to 2018. And during that 17 year span, they found that there was an annual increase of advanced cervical cancer. We're talking stage four here at a rate of 1.3%. And during that same time period, the researchers found that the demographic that saw the biggest increase overall were white women in the South. In that demographic, there was an annual increase at the rate of 4.5% in stage four cervical cancers. Now, the researchers did emphasize that overall, when you think of the uh, incidence of getting stage four cervical cancer being diagnosed with it, the researchers did emphasize that black women are still more likely to be diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer than white women overall. So we're talking about that's at a rate of among black women women, there are 1.55 cases for every 100,000 individuals compared within white women. 
The rate is 0.92 cases per 100,000. So those are the numbers there, Jake. And again, I think what we can take away from this is that we are uh, diagnosing more cervical cancers at a late stage, at stage four. And that has physicians really taking a close eye on what might be happening here. Well, help us understand the factors that might be contributing to this rise in cases. Right. So the factors are twofold, actually. There are two factors that the researchers point to. Number one, they do say that there appears to be a trend among young women to not keep up with their cervical cancer screenings. Mm-hmm. So most healthy women are recommended to complete their pap test every three years. That's the cervical cancer screening test. And there are some uh, data points to suggest that some women are not doing that. And if you don't keep up with your screening, then you can't, if you do have cervical cancer, you can't identify the case early on. And then the second factor here, Jake, uh, researchers did point to low vaccination rates for the HPV vaccine. And we know HPV is a virus associated with cervical cancer. So low vaccination rates might be playing, you know, a role here. So those are the two factors at play. And researchers say the takeaway for women really is to maintain your cervical cancer screenings. Make sure you talk to your doctor, get your pap test. And if you're not vaccinated get and you're eligible for the HPV vaccine, get the vaccine. On another matter, um, Pfizer today announced that it has filed with the FDA for authorization of a new updated COVID booster. That's right. And you know, Jake, we saw this coming. Federal health officials did say that there are plans to have an updated booster available in September. So if with Pfizer's application to the FDA to have its updated vaccine authorized, that's really the first regulatory step to possibly having an updated booster available in the fall. And what we mean by updated, this vaccine has been updated to specifically target Omicron subvariants BA5 and BA4, which are dominant here in the U.S., Jake. And and finally, we should note that Dr. Anthony Fauci announced that uh, after decades working for NIH and, and serving the American people in government, he is retiring from his post in government. That's right. In his statement, it is interesting, Jake, he says in his statement that while he's leaving this position, he emphasizes, quote, while I'm moving on from my current positions, I'm not retiring. So I think that's a hint that he might be, I don't know, he might have plans to do something else in the health field. So I'm excited to see what his next phase is, Jake. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thanks so much. Appreciate it. New video coming in showing the severity of all that rain falling in Texas right now, a summer's worth in less than one day. The dangerous situation that's creating as even more rain moves in. That's ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, drivers trapped in their cars because of rising water. Trucks washed away by raging floods as Dallas, Texas gets a summer's worth of rain in less than 24 hours, and the rain is not over. Plus, a gruesome suitcase mystery involving an auction and children's decomposing remains. Now the investigation is spreading to multiple countries. And leading this hour, a CNN investigation you'll see first here on The Lead, how one billionaire's previously secret political donation, the largest ever in U.S. history to a political nonprofit, could help reshape the United States of America for decades. CNN's Drew Griffin investigated where this money came from and, and fears that it could be used, at least in part, to fund efforts that would undermine American elections. This IRS document obtained by CNN is evidence of the largest anonymous dark money political donation ever reported. 
$1.6 billion. It is, according to experts, a staggering amount. I am just stunned. We are talking about income that is many multiples larger than the largest dark money groups ever found. And it's going to a new organization called Marble Freedom Trust. While you've probably never heard of it or the man in charge of it, the whole country is familiar with his work. His name is Leonard Leo, a devout Catholic known as Donald Trump's Supreme Court whisperer. There are lots of really smart people, Margaret, who can serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, dozens and dozens. But you need people who have courage. Leo helped usher in the most conservative Supreme Court in decades. Along with helping block Merrick Garland from the court, he and his colleagues at the Federalist Society are given credit for the confirmations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. It was Leo who was in the driver's seat of those uh, nominations. Leo is the person who can raise the money and has the background to put in place judges who will build a conservative judicial infrastructure around the country. Leonard Leo now has an unprecedented amount of cash to spend on whatever political projects he likes. And while the donation was meant to be kept secret, name and address withheld on the IRS form, CNN has confirmed the source is 90-year-old businessman and philanthropist Barry Side, who donated the stock of his entire company, the Trip Light Company of Chicago, to Marble Freedom Trust, which turned around and sold it for $1.6 billion. CNN has attempted to reach Mr. Side without response. His donation will leave behind a dark money political legacy that could last decades. Already, Marble Freedom Trust has given more than $200 million to other causes, including $40 million to Donors Trust, which has doled out millions to conservative causes. In a statement to CNN, Leonard Leo said it's high time for the conservative movement to be among the ranks of George Soros and other left-wing philanthropists going toe-to-toe in the fight to defend our Constitution and its ideals. Jake, that is an understatement. This amount of money dwarfs any previous dark money single contribution we could find and certainly dwarfs the liberal funds Leonard Leo is referencing. One other note of significance... According to tax experts we've talked to, this deal looks like it's set up so an entire company is donated and then sold tax-free by everyone involved. A $1.6 billion transaction with no tax. Jake? Of course. Drew Griffin, thanks. Turning to breaking news now in our politics lead, Donald Trump is seeking what is known as a special master. This would be a third-party attorney who would review whether materials that the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago could be used in in a criminal investigation. CNN's Caitlin Palance and Caitlin Collins are tracking this legal development, the first that the former president has made since his private residence was searched. Uh, Caitlin Palance, let me start with you. What is Trump's legal team asking for in their new filing? Well, essentially, Jake, uh, Donald Trump and his legal team want to pump the brakes on anything that the Justice Department collected and would be going through now in this ongoing criminal investigation. So to do that, they're asking for four things. They're asking for a special master, so a third party that would be appointed by the court to make sure what is collected in that evidence is the sort of thing investigators can use as they continue investigating. He also wants to pause uh, the Justice Department from reviewing that information. That's number two. Number three, 
Rudy, uh, he wants a more detailed receipt of the property that was provided to him. Now, we do know that the Justice Department, the FBI, provided two receipts to him that his lawyer signed at the end of that search when they removed 33 items, but he wants more detail about that. Um, and four, he wants the Justice Department to return any items that they say would not be within the scope of the search warrant that would be found to be that way by this special master if it would be appointed. Uh, so those are all of the things he's asking for. He's also making some legal claims saying that his constitutional rights may be violated, that there are potentially privileged materials that had been taken out of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but of course, Jake, we need to make put some caveats in this in that there was a hearing last week. There were lots of chances for Donald Trump's team to speak up in court. They did not do that. It has been two weeks since this search, since the Justice Department has had all of this evidence in that uh, in their possession. And we also know uh, that the FBI uh, did receive many things, uh, go through them, and their filter team was at work and even returned to Trump and his team things that they didn't need in that investigation, including two expired passports and a diplomatic passport for the former president. So we'll see what the judge does here. Uh, there hasn't been a response yet in court yet to this. And Caitlin Collins, what else are you discovering in this document? A lot, Jake. It's actually pretty detailed about their view of how all of this transpired leading up to this search of Mar-a-Lago. We should note it also reveals that the search warrant was actually signed on August 5th, that Friday before it was actually carried out at Mar-a-Lago. They're raising the question in this filing about why the search warrant was signed at 12, 12 p.m. on that Friday, August 5th. And the search wasn't carried out until Monday, of course. As Caitlin noted, we have not heard a response from the Justice Department on this matter. But they do note that. They say that Jay Bratt, who was this Justice Department official who visited Mar-a-Lago at that previously reported June 3rd meeting, was the one who arrived. He called Trump's counsel and then asked Trump's counsel to turn the cameras off at Mar-a-Lago. Of course, that's been a point of dispute. There is one really fascinating thing in this filing, Jake, and it is confirmation from Trump's legal team that they did try to pass a message along to Attorney General Garland. And on it, it says that August 11th, three days after this search was carried out, Trump's counsel called Jay Bratt, who was this Justice Department official who's really leading this investigation, and asked him to pass along this message from Trump to Attorney General Garland. I'm going to read it in full, Jake, because it says, President Trump wants the Attorney General to know that he has been hearing from people all over the country about the raid. If there was one word to describe the mood, it is angry. The heat is building up. The pressure is building up. Whatever I can do to take the heat down, to bring the pressure down, just let us know. Jake, previously officials had not confirmed, people around Trump had not confirmed that he did try to get a message to Attorney General Garland. They are confirming it in this filing, which is just remarkable in and of itself, really, Jake. The other thing I want to note is that it's been two weeks since the search of Mar-a-Lago happened. There had been some disagreement in Trump's orbit, I was told by sources, over whether or not to seek this special master and how quickly to do it, with some criticism that they had kind of missed the window. They should have done it sooner rather than later. Of course, it is now two weeks since the search happened, and they are taking their first legal action here. It does show that there is some disagreement behind the scenes over what is the best strategy going forward and coalescing around a singular strategy here. But clearly, this is now a decision they are making. They do have one thing in mind here, Jake. Having this search for a special master could potentially slow things down since they are asking investigators to pause their work until a special master, this third-party attorney, would be appointed. Let's uh, bring in the CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, as well. Um, Ellie, what do you think of, of Trump's chances uh, in terms of succeeding 
in this uh, filing and getting a special master to be appointed to go through all of the material collected at Mar-a-Lago before the Justice Department uh, takes whatever they find relevant. Well, Jake, on the special master request, I think Donald Trump has a fairly good chance of prevailing. It's a reasonable request. It's actually not unprecedented. The idea is let's get an outside third party, typically you'd have a retired federal judge come in and review these documents and make sure that there's nothing that's attorney client privilege, potentially executive privilege. If there is, that special master will hold on to it and it will not pass through to prosecutors. There is precedent for this, I think most memorably, when DOJ did a search warrant on Michael Cohen in 2018. There was a special master appointed, a former federal judge from the Southern District of New York, Barbara Jones. She went through the documents. She only passed along to prosecutors those documents that were not privileged. So as Caitlin notes, though, this will take time if the request is granted. It probably should have been made the request a couple weeks ago, shortly after the search was made, because for all we know, DOJ is already going through that information. But this is not an unusual request, and I think it's fairly well grounded. Uh, And you heard Caitlin just report that Trump's legal team tried to contact uh, Attorney General Garland with this message about how angry people are across the country. Uh, What did you make of that? Well, it's wildly inappropriate at a minimum. Uh, Look, you are not supposed to, you are not allowed to try to influence a prosecution in any way. If you're a subject or a target or any person and reaching out to the attorney general himself with the kind of message, whether it sounds like they're trying to bring the temperature down or not, is really inappropriate and I think ill-advised. I just want to bring in uh, Caitlin for a second. We we do hear this a lot, Caitlin, uh, from Trump allies along the lines of, you know, the FBI better not do this. There's going to be like bad things are going to happen. It, it, sometimes it's a vague threat. Sometimes it's pretty direct. I also think an interesting aspect of this is the political, the political argument that they're making in this filing, Jake, which is they say Trump, who has not yet declared that he is running for office in 2024, is the clear front runner in the Republican presidential primary and in the 2024 general election, should he decide to run. They're also bringing the midterm elections into this, Jake, basically trying to make this argument that uh, what Trump has been saying since the day that he confirmed this search, which is his claim that it's politically motivated. They cite the press conference by the attorney general. And basically they're saying, um, for example, let me read you part of this, Jake, just to show you the argument that Trump's legal team is making. On August 8th, 2022, in a shockingly aggressive move and with no understanding of the distress that it would cause most Americans, roughly two dozen special agents of the FBI directed by the Justice Department went to Trump's home. So that is how they're framing it, Jake. That is the right off the bat in this motion that they're filing, their first legal motion we are getting from the Trump team. They are trying to say that this is a politically motivated attack against Trump and saying that it's because he's the front runner. That has kind of been their strategy all along and what they're using in a public court of opinion, certainly, Jake, as they've been making both of their legal arguments on television. This is the first time they're actually making an argument in a court filing. And as Caitlin noted, they've had opportunities to do so previously and, and have not yet done so. And Ellie, uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, was on State of the Union yesterday, and he, he made a a similar argument uh, about just the inherently political nature uh, of this uh, search. Take a listen. When you're going after an ex-president who may run again, that this is, this is automatically political. You, can't, you cannot separate the, 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 the legal aspects of this from the political aspects of it. You can't. And it doesn't seem to me like they've acted responsibly as a result of that. Ellie, what did you think when you heard uh, Congressman Crenshaw say that? 
Well, Jake, I'm not sure Dan Crenshaw has a, has a basis to say the DOJ has not acted responsibly here. He, like all of us, has not yet seen the affidavit. But I do think he has a good point that this prosecution or investigation is inherently political. And prosecutors like to and rightly strive to operate separate and apart from politics. But prosecutors also operate in reality. We can't operate in a vacuum as much as we strive for that at DOJ. And I think he's right that the closer we get to the midterms in the 2024 presidential election cycle, the more fraught, the more potentially difficult it gets to charge, to investigate, to indict, potentially to convict anyone, never mind somebody who may well be the front runner. I think that's just reality. Yeah, although I'd, I would also observe that if they decided not to investigate potential law breaking because of the political dimension, that is also sure. a political uh, decision. Caitlin <laughs> uh, Palance, uh, how might all of this, this filing today and this request for a special master and all that how might that complicate Thursday's hearing, which is about how much of the affidavit uh, to release to the public? Right. Well, that would be a court filing that the Justice Department will be putting in under seal in court. And actually, one of the things that's fascinating about this new filing is it puts into the court record for the first time more of the narrative of the investigation. That was something that had only been spoken about in media interviews, uh, in reports from various news outlets. But there is um, a recitation of what happened in June, that crucial time when the FBI, the Justice Department, top investigators on this visited Mar-a-Lago. And Donald Trump's team says uh, that Donald Trump himself greeted them in the dining room at Mar-a-Lago. He said to Mr. Bratt, Jay Bratt, the Justice Department prosecutor and FBI agents, whatever you need, just let us no, that's in this court filing. They're also uh, putting at Trump's feet quite a few other things that he himself was doing and giving permission to during this investigation. They're saying um, the the FBI agents thanked him at one point and said, you did not need to show us the storage room. We appreciate it. This all makes sense. Trump then, when asked to secure that room, said uh, he directed his staff to place a second lock on the door. They also write, the Trump team says, President Trump continued to assist the government, not others around him, him himself, uh, he himself, and that Trump himself was the person who gave the direction to comply with that subpoena to hand over surveillance footage of the areas inside Mar-a-Lago that the Justice Department wanted to observe. So they really are saying what Trump's agency was here and potentially uh, hoping to couch that um, in the guise of the power of the presidency uh, that he may have. So it really isn't others that they're putting this on. It is Trump. All right, Caitlin Palance, Ellie Honig, Caitlin Collins, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it coming in uh, with this breaking news report. Uh, it is flooding down in Texas, the Dallas area already seeing 10 inches of rain in less than 24 hours, and that threat is not over. Then, teachers in one state's largest school district are going on strike just days before classes start, and they're not alone. Bus drivers and custodians are also striking in a different city. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, a summer's worth of rain dumped on Dallas in just a matter of hours. The impact of the climate crisis leading to extreme flash flooding and dozens of water rescues overnight. And throughout today, floodwaters submerged cars and trucks, forcing drivers to try to swim away in dangerous conditions. This, as nearly 15 million people are under flood alerts from the southwest into the southeast of the United States. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Dallas, where nearly 10 inches of rain resulted in a 1 in 100 year threshold. Ed, tell us more about the chaotic scenes unfolding in the area. 
Well, Jake, a breathtaking 24 hours here uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Nearly 400 high-water rescues in Dallas and Fort Worth. You add in many more of those rescues happening in the suburbs and the cities around the area. And this has been a historic day of flooding all around. Uh, the area and it has been uh, chaotic. The rainfall, as much as 10 inches of rain falling in some places uh, here, in, in the, especially in Dallas County, in the southeast part of the, of the county, which took the brunt of this heavy rainfall. And Jake, you can see behind me, you know, we have been talking for weeks and months about the low levels, uh, the dropping lake levels evaporating because of extreme drought, extreme heat. All of this essentially vanishing in less than 24 hours. This is one of those spillways in East Dallas uh, where the water uh, in a spillway where this has been bone dry for weeks is now a rushing river and scenes like this playing out in many areas across North Texas this afternoon. A sliver of good news is, is that the rain has finally moved out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area into East Texas. And as we've been driving around here this afternoon, Jake, uh, the water levels are quickly receding, especially in the areas where uh, as much as three to four feet of water got into some homes and into neighborhoods as well. So uh, as quickly as it came in, it seems to be moving out and receding just as quickly as well. Jake. All right, Ed Levendera in Dallas, thank you so much. How long will the rain last in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? Let's bring in CNN meteorologist Tom Sater to find out. Tom, explain how extreme this rainfall has been. Uh, it's just crazy. The rain is coming to an end in Dallas. However, it's moving eastward. But Dallas just ended, Jake, the second longest dry stretch in history. And the records go back to 1899. Since the beginning of the year, they had a deficit of 10 inches, and they got it all in one day. You mentioned a 1 in 100 year event, but this total of 15 in East Dallas, that's a 1 in 1,000 year event. So again, yes, a summer's worth of rainfall in 24 hours. Second highest August rainfall. They are just a third of an inch from the wettest August in history. You got to go back to you know, 1915 for that one. But part of the problem, it's all runoff, is the drought we've been in. If you look at the 10, top 10 driest years, San Antonio, this is the driest ever. Second for College Station. Third, San, uh, San Angelo. Dallas, the fifth driest. So it's just hitting this ground. What we really need is just weeks of a nice light rainfall to seep into the ground. But all of this is moving away from the area. But if you expand out a little bit, we now have warnings down in the Austin area. At least that line is moving. This weather setup, Jake, is much like we had a few weeks ago from that one in 1,000 year event from St. Louis to the tragedy in Kentucky. This is how much rain fell. And for the most part, the models two days ago and even yesterday were predicting a good six to 10 inches of rain. But now it's extending eastward where it's been raining even more across areas of Louisiana and toward Mississippi. So the watches extend in this area and there's much more on the way. So again, now the threat's going to continue as it moves into Louisiana, Mississippi and later on Alabama. All right, Tom Sater, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, these times are a changing and so are Americans Habits, plus women around the world showing off their dance moves to show their support for the Finnish prime minister who is in the middle of a rather bizarre dance scandal. Stay with us. In our health lead, new evidence that the times as well as people's smoking habits are a changing. A new study funded by the National Institutes of Health shows the use of marijuana and hallucinogens among young people people between 19 and 30, are at all-time highs. This comes as, for the first time ever, more people say they used weed than tobacco cigarettes. CNN's Harry Enten, who usually keeps his eye on politics, has been inhaling some different kinds of numbers today. Uh, Harry, what'd you find? 
Oh, my God, if I can get through this segment without laughing, it will, it will be a miracle. Look, uh, have you smoked or ever tried marijuana? Currently, look at this, 16% of Americans say yes. That is an all-time high. You know, we also have this ever-tried marijuana uh, part of the screen. And I want to know, back in October of 1969, just 4% of Americans said they ever tried marijuana. So we've been seeing this continuous uptrend. And you can see ever-tried now up to 48%. Now, what's really interesting to me is, have you smoked cigarettes in the last week? The trend is going in the exact opposite direction, Jake. So now, just 11% of Americans say they have, in fact, smoked cigarettes in the last week. That's an all-time low. Go back to July of 69. Look at that. It was nearly half the population at 40%. So marijuana smoking, record high. Smoking cigarettes, record low. I I imagine, Harry, that there's a big divide when it comes to age. There is a huge divide when it comes to age. So if we go to my age bracket, right, the age 18 to 34, 30% say they currently smoke marijuana. I'm not sure where you fit in, Jake. I'm not going to try and guess. I didn't look it up. I'm 53. I'm in the middle. There you go. There, you're in the middle. It's I mean, 16%. The, fact that, the fact that you were wondering about it is offensive. Like, okay, but keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep going, keep going. Keep going. You go to my, my mother's age bracket, it's just 7%. Look at smoke cigarettes in the last week. It's the opposite age pattern. Age 55 and over, 14% say they smoke cigarettes in the last week. Age is 35 to 54, 10. And look at that. In my age bracket, just 8%. So many more people in my age bracket are smoking marijuana than they are smoking cigarettes. And and how do Americans feel about the idea of legalizing marijuana today? Yeah. Yeah. So, again, this goes with the trend that we saw in the prior slides. More Americans are smoking marijuana. And more than that, more Americans believe it should be legalized. Look at this. In October of 2021, 68%, the vast majority said they believed that marijuana use should be legal. Go back to October of 1969, it was just 12% of Americans, and we've seen this steady up climb, 31% in September of 2000, and then October of 2011, it was 50-50, and now the clear vast majority believe that marijuana should be legal. Now compare this to something that I think is interesting on cigarette smoking, right? The vast majority of people believe that smoking cigarettes, at least in your home, should be legal, but make smoking cigarettes illegal in public places. You look back in July of 2001, it was 39%. You look back in July of 2007, 40%. Then all of a sudden, in the last decade, we have crossed the majority threshold. Most Americans believe that smoking cigarettes should in fact be illegal in public places. And at the same time now, most Americans believe that smoking or at least being able to smoke marijuana somewhere should be legal. So very differentiating differentiating trends and the age gap really explains a lot of it, Jake. All right, Harry Anton, going one toke over the line for us. Thank you so much. I hear you. Love that song. I hear you. All right. Turning to our world lead. People across the globe posting videos of themselves dancing in a show of solidarity with Finnish Prime Minister uh, Sanna Marin. Critics have called her recent behavior inappropriate. That's after a leaked video showed her horror upon horrors dancing at a party. Marin said she was drinking lightly but had not been taking drugs. Today, the prime minister is backing up that statement, saying a drug test showed she had no narcotics in her system. The leaked video prompted some of Marin's opponents to criticize her behavior as unbecoming of a prime minister. Marin maintained that uh, she was still in an inappropriate state to lead the country, an appropriate state to lead the country, and expressed frustration that the video had been released when it was filmed in a private space. A new poll from NBC News shows some potentially good news for Democrats heading into November's midterm elections, which are now just over 11 weeks away. 
Democrats have nearly eliminated their enthusiasm gap with Republican voters. 66% of Democratic voters expressing a high level of interest in the upcoming election compared with 68% of Republicans. In May, Republicans held a 17-point advantage on enthusiasm. Uh, I know what happened to change that. Let's discuss it. But before, uh, I have an all-woman panel, which is not an infrequent occurrence. I just wonder... um, Anybody want to weigh in on the scandalous behavior of the Finnish prime minister who I understand uh, was was dancing at a private party? Does anybody- I, you know, she looks like she was having fun. I think leaders are allowed to have fun. Who uh, taped it and released it and why it became a scandal, I, I, I can't imagine. I think it's partly because she's a woman. She is a, an attractive woman. Um, and uh, I think that's what it, it, it's getting at. Uh, and it's unfortunate. If that's the worst thing they have their politicians right. doing <laughs> exactly. in that country... I mean, seriously, we have insurrections here. Anyway, so let's uh, let, let's talk uh, about all the changes going on. Alensi, let me start with you. These new enthusiasm numbers for Democrats comes uh, amid falling gas prices, some significant legislative achievements for Democrats, and what I suspect, I'm, I want to talk to you about this afterwards, uh, most importantly, growing backlash to, to Roe v. Wade being uh, overturned. How do you see the outlook uh, looking for dem- Democrats? You know, I still think it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle for us. However, to your point, yes, the achievements from the Biden administration and our slim majority in Congress and the Senate and also Roe v. Wade being overturned has made more people pay attention. The one thing I am concerned about that's in that polling is the enthusiasm gap among young voters mm. and rural voters. And we really need young voters to actually show up so that we can hold on to the slim majority uh, in November. But to the point around the Dobbs decision, that is something that's galvanizing young voters. And it's also firing up women voters who are showing the enthusiasm. So, you know, President Biden is hitting the campaign trail this week. He's starting uh, in Maryland to hopefully have the first black uh, uh, governor of Maryland. And then at the same time, his administration is going to be out here touting the achievements of the the long forgotten, it seems like, the infrastructure bill that was passed by a bipartisan Senate, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. And so having these uh, conversations in the public, I think, is only going to help us come November. Is it uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade that's really driving the enthusiasm, the improved enthusiasm numbers uh, among Democrats? It's correlation is not causation, but there's a pretty strong correlation between the moment that the polling really began to turn a little bit more in Democrats' favor and the decision. Uh, it's important to note the leaked decision did not actually change the polls. It wasn't until the Supreme Court actually made that ruling in Dobbs that you began to see that change. Now, can you disentangle it from the fact that gas is now $4 a gallon instead of $5 a gallon? It's hard to say exactly which factor, but I strongly suspect that for some Democrats, particularly younger Democrats, that had been a big vulnerability uh, headed into the midterms. This was something that made a lot of young voters go, ah, maybe I do need to go vote. Yeah. And and Sabrina, one thing that could explain the better outlook for Democrats in addition uh, is that as inflation has cooled, voters no longer see the cost of living as the number one issue facing the country. Absolutely. I mean, we've definitely seen that shift. What I'm curious to see is what the administration is going to do on messaging with that, because they're talking very much about how they want to tout their achievements, their their congressional achievements so far. They want to tout that the economy is stronger than ever. Are they going to pivot to talking more about the threat to democracy, which now seems to be the number one issue on Americans' minds. And they've tried to steer clear of that to some extent and focus on the economy and grocery prices and gas prices. But that shift may come if we see more polling that shows that this is the number one thing on their mind. Yeah, and Niamalika, 21% of Americans say threats to democracy is the most important issue uh, facing the country that's ahead of the cost of living, ahead of the economy, which are 
which are underneath uh, 16% uh, and 14%. Republicans were counting on running uh, on the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are also, we should point out, Republicans are nominating a lot of election liars in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh People are paying attention. People are paying attention and Republicans are a bit worried about some of the folks uh, who have emerged from these primaries uh, in Senate and gubernatorial races. The idea now is that they have to sort of take the big lie, uh, not just to a small population of Republican base voters who are enthused by Trump, enthused by Trump's lies. Uh, they have to take it more broadly to independent voters uh, who are turned off by some of this. It also doesn't help that Donald Trump is now in the news more than ever uh, because of this FBI raid, obviously because of the January 6th uh, hearing as well. That doesn't help Republicans. They want to keep it on high gas prices. They even want to keep it on sort of COVID mismanagement or some of the uh, things that went on in some of these states over the last years that some are, some people started to bristle against. But now turning to this, you know, sort of Trump-centric uh, campaign that some of these Senate and gubernatorial candidates are running, Democrats feel a little better now and Republicans somewhat worried that Trump inserted himself into these uh, campaigns and he didn't necessarily have to. Um, I've seen some polling suggesting that Trump did get a boost among Republican voters after the FBI raid. Again, I don't know if correlation, causation, et cetera, as you note. Um, What what has been the effect that you've seen? And and what's the effect on uh, independent voters uh, who obviously are going to make the big difference in a lot of these races? Well, by putting Trump back front and center, it's putting the focus on things that Republicans would be less likely to want to talk about than things like cost of living, than things that are more sort of uniformly viewed as a problem. Um, In that poll that we just talked about with the threats to democracy being top of the list, the problem that that Republicans are facing internally is that, you know, the reason why that number, it shows that that's the top issue across the board for Americans is because both Republicans and Democrats are putting that in their top three. That's not the case for issues like immigration, which is high for Republicans but low for Democrats, or something like abortion, high for Democrats but low for Republicans. But for Republicans, what we saw, you know, with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, et cetera, that's got a lot of Republicans saying, I view that as a threat to democracy. So you see something like that rise to the top of a poll, not because Republicans and Democrats are in agreement about what the threats to democracy are, but rather that they could read a lot into that phrase. It's a choose-your-own-adventure kind of statement. Right. A threat to democracy to somebody who believes Donald Trump's lies about the election, they might think, a threat to democracy is this software that the Italians are controlling and sending in Martians to come in and, like, you know, switch votes for, you know, in favor of Joe Biden. They might interpret it that way. You know, it's, it is interesting. And, and what Kirsten said is, like, it's the interpretation, right, that we are talking about among the parties. And, you know, before the insurrection, Democrats were saying, when Donald Trump was actually elected, Democrats were saying that democracy is under attack. And now with the Supreme Court decisions, all these investigations into President Donald Trump. And then on the other side, Republicans are like, oh, no, they're coming for our power. They're coming from our seats and our positions. Right. And so there's this uh, kind of tension of what does that look like? And, you know, you had Mitch McConnell say that's not a top issue for him. He felt like democracy is kind of stable. And so it'll be interesting to see how this feeling of a threat to democracy will play out among voters on both sides in November. So Biden's going to go on the road. He's going to try to talk about all the accomplishments of the administration and just stepping away aside from it. First of all, there are like a number of huge bipartisan achievements. Uh, And Joe Biden gets credit for that. I mean, Mitch McConnell gets credit for it. Also, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. Uh, And then you have these big bills that are that are partisan, uh, but also significant in terms of their size and scope, even if people don't like them. Why has the why have the Democrats not been able to connect on this yet? I mean, people do not feel even 
Uh, obviously, inflation remains a problem, but there are good numbers out there in terms of uh, jobs, job numbers, employment numbers. Wages are up. The number of people uh, who don't have health insurance is down. Uh, where, where's the disconnect here? The reality is that a lot of this is hard to talk about. I mean, explaining why inflation, why things have changed with inflation when it was up, when it's down, when it's moving is difficult to explain to the average American. Gas prices going up, hard to explain. Grocery prices, hard to explain why these things are happening. And the reality is, with the achievements that the administration has had, that's a challenge, too. Right now, we're going to see it when when the administration is on the road and Biden's on the road of touting these victories and being able to explain, yeah, that billion dollars, okay, you're going to see it at the terminals in LAX. You're going to see it in that road that you complain about when you're driving. But making those connections is going to be key for November because touting a bipartisan bill, if you don't know why it affects your life, why would that move you to go vote in November? And Amalika, if somebody had told me a year ago that one of the nastiest races uh, in the United States in 2022 was going to be between Congressman Gerald Nadler, liberal Democrat, and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, liberal Democrat, Democrat, both from Manhattan, I I wouldn't have any idea what they were talking about. But but take a listen to this. Yeah. I think that you should uh, read the editorial in the New York Post today. They call him senile. They cite his uh, performance at the debate where he couldn't even remember who he was, who he impeached. Carolyn Maloney citing Rupert Rupert Murdoch's New York Post Mm -hmm. uh, calling uh, Gerald Nadler senile. Her friend, right? I mean, or at least this was her friend. They have been uh, in Congress together together for something like uh, 30 years. And now because of this redistricting mess that was set up by the Democrats, they're fighting each other. Uh, We don't know who's going to emerge from this. We don't know when we'll know. It could be a mess in terms of counting votes as well as it has been before. Usually uh, is. In in New York. But it is so, so very nasty between the these two. And it really has become an identity contest. She's running on the fact that she's a woman. He's leaning into uh, his Jewish roots. And there's another uh, gentleman who's an Indian American. And he's talking about, you know, just a break in, in diversity and a break to, into a new generation. But my goodness, we'll see when we know who wins. Yeah, pretty harsh. Yeah. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. Coming up just days before kids are set to return to the classroom, teachers in one major city go on strike. And they're not the only ones. Stay with us. In our national lead, in a couple of major cities, back-to-school season is turning into back-to-labor troubles and back-to-the-picket lines. CNN's Bryn Gingras is keeping track of the biggest controversies. Uh, Bryn, a teacher's strike started today in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, Jake. So Columbus School District said it gave this teachers union, uh, you know, in the largest school district there in the state, its best and final offer. And about 94 percent of that union, which represents the teachers, said not good enough. So that sent about 4000 teachers to the picket line starting today. And the deadline for any negotiations to sort of be finalized is Wednesday, the start of school. So it's certainly around the quarter. Now, at issue here is they want smaller class sizes for one. They also just want, you know, the heating and the AC units inside these school buildings to be working. And that's a major issue uh, for many of these teachers, as well as just a single day that they can get some planning. It just the the demands that they're asking for, it just shows sort of the fed upness that they've had uh, dealing with the pandemic this last couple of years, the teacher shortages. It's just very obvious uh, in what they are asking for. But the district says, hey, listen, we have come to you to negotiate 22 times and we can't reach an agreement. So they said school could possibly start on Wednesday 
and students will be learning online with substitute teachers. This could possibly affect sports because a lot of these teachers are also sporting coaches. And the teachers union essentially says, you know what, we're not just doing this for us. We're doing this for the students as well. Take a listen. We understand that parents are in a difficult space right now, but we also want them to understand that we are doing this for the students of Columbus and that we are we truly are making this sacrifice because we want the schools that Columbus students deserve. Now, Jake, the school board is going back behind closed doors tonight, 8 p.m., to figure out what their next steps are going to be. So we'll see what comes out of that meeting. Uh, Bryn, meanwhile, in the great city of Philadelphia, about 2,000 school employees, including school bus drivers, also just authorized a strike. Yeah, that's right. And so they have a little bit longer because the start of school isn't until next week. So it's possible that there could be some agreement. But yes, this is dealing with school bus drivers, the bus mechanics, people who clean the schools. They essentially just want more training and higher pay. They're saying, listen, we put in so much work for you. We were there for you during the pandemic. It's about time that we are giving back the things that we want, including active shooting, active shooter training, for example. Uh, So the school district says there's hope that they'll come to an agreement here. But again, and this is just another sign seeing this in Philadelphia and also Columbus that, you know, these teachers, these people who work in these schools, they're fed up. They want more, you know, they want to be paid back for the time that they spent during this pandemic uh, and dealt with so much and were there for the kids in, in these school districts. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras, thanks so much. Coming up, right. now you see it, now you don't. A new court filing claims top immigration officials under Trump were told to wipe their cell phones. The details ahead. In our politics lead now, the phones belonging to several top Trump-era immigration officials were allegedly wiped and deactivated after they left their positions. The revelation coming from a dispute between ICE and the watchdog group American Oversight. CNN's Tom Foreman joins us now to tell us more. Tom, what do we know about what the Trump administration was telling these officials to do with their phones? We know that there was a dictum from 2017 and reiterated in 2018 that said people from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, when they left these top positions and turned in their phones or went somewhere else, that they were supposed to wipe everything off the phones, all the messages, all of that, and turn the phone in and theoretically that they might personally keep these records but not under the government's purview. This of course fits into the story we've heard now with several different groups out there where people have been concerned that under the Trump administration there wasn't a lot of interest in keeping records that actually do belong to the public. Now ICE has essentially said that uh, things have changed. Homeland Security says things have changed then. It's not clear if they can find these records again The group that raised the complaint says their fear is that these were actually taken away after they launched a lawsuit saying, we need to know what's going on with this agency, that that's when it was all wiped out. We'll find out, Jake. It's it's just new now, but it certainly is fitting into a pattern that many would consider concerning here. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Coming up, why some parents are having their own children stand in front of speeding Teslas. Stay with us. In our money lead, some Tesla supporters are videotaping their own children standing in front of moving Teslas to show that the car's self-driving feature really works. This trend comes after a software CEO called for the feature to be banned until Tesla CEO Elon Musk can, quote, prove it won't mow down children. While some Tesla enthusiasts sought out to defend the company, others noted the self-driving feature is not perfect. 
person. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says people should never attempt to create their own tests or use real people. God. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN or listen to our podcast from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Alex Marquardt in from Wolf Blitzer, right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.